Let's open our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 31. But before we start reading this scripture, in the 31st chapter it tells you of the uh, ones that God selected to build the tabernacle and the works that he chose, uh, uh, he appointed them to do and various things that we'll get into there. And chapters 31 and 32 and 33, actually 32 and 33 and 34 are the princes, but 31 tells of the building uh, of the uh, the uh, ones that were uh, qualified for the work of building the tabernacle. And chapter 32, the experience of the golden calf. And chapter 33, Moses sees the glory of God. And then chapter 34, the second uh, tables of stone. And that those uh, 32, 33, and 34 is a, the parenthetical uh, section of this book of Exodus. And we will try to... Uh, get into that if we have time. But first of all, I would like, before we read anything, if you have the little drawing of the tabernacle that I gave you, I, I just want to kind of give you a little walk through here in simplicity if I can, uh, from the outside uh, to the inside of this uh, tabernacle. And uh, we'll deal with the most uh, essential parts of it. If you notice that fence around the tabernacle itself, it's a white linen fence, and it speaks of divine righteousness. And the only thing that stands all around this around this uh, court, this fence, all the twelve tribes of the children of Israel pitched their tents. So they were on the outside of this linen fence. Now God's glory is on the inside, especially in that where the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. But the main thing I want you to see, first of all, in, in just simple language, is that what separates sinful man from a holy God is divine righteousness. If we were divinely righteous, we would not be separated from God. So we're on the outside of the fence. And we need on the inside of this court, and we need also to progress until we get right into the Holy of Holies. Now, just keep your eyes. What I'm saying all comes to light as you look at this picture. Just keep looking at this picture and concentrating upon it. So that white linen fence shows the separation between a holy God and sinful man. Now then the front of this uh, court, uh, court, you see the gate. The only way of entrance, now listen, the only way of entrance into the presence of God is through that gate. Now then, we must have Christ's righteousness to be on the inside. And we must enter in through that gate. Because that is the, the only way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. By the way, uh, this fence was so high that the natural man could not see over it. He could not get over it. And you know, Jesus said that we cannot go over or under or climb up any, the one that tries to climb up any other way, the same as a thief and a robber. And for natural man to try to enter into God's presence in any other way than by that gate, he's breaking God's law and, and he's a thief and a robber. And to try to get to heaven by works, you're, you're not going to make it. Or your own goodness or your own righteousness. He says you need divine righteousness. So that gate there represents Christ as the one and only way. You know, I've preached several funerals out here at the cemetery, uh, graveside type funerals, and I, 
usually use a very simple text and uh, preach on John 14 and where Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. For in My Father's house are many mansions. And then on down He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the way and He's the one way and He's the only way under the heaven and under the Father. And so that gate represents that. Now then, let's walk on inside the gate. Suppose you get on the inside. He's showing us the way. We know it's through Him. But it's through His sacrifice. Because you see that brazen altar now? Look at it on your picture. That brazen altar is where is typical of Calvary's cross. You see? Now you're on your way into this uh, tabernacle. Look at the picture. You're on your way into that tabernacle, but you must come by the way of the cross, right? And through the sacrifice of that cross. Now, all kinds of offerings and sacrifices were offered on that, on that brazen altar. There was a sin offering, so Jesus had to die for our sins. There was a peace offering, He had to make peace with God. There was the whole burnt offering, He offered Himself uh, holy uh, unto God as an offering of a sweet-smelling savor unto the Father. That's the burnt offering. And that's just three. Let me mention those three specifically. That if you look at that brazen altar, keep your eyes on it. If you look at that brazen altar, symbolical of the cross of Christ, and think of the sacrificial uh, offerings that were made on that brazen altar, you have to be mindful, first of all, that there had to be a sin offering. And Jesus died for our sins on the cross, right? And then there had to be a peace offering. Colossians 1.20 says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross. You're still right here at that brazen altar. And then it, the Bible tells us that He offered Himself. Ephesians 5.2, it says, And walk in love as Christ also had loved us, and given Himself an offering and a sacrifice uh, for us, uh, for a sweet-smelling savor unto God. So it was not only for our sins, for our sins, but for a sweet-smelling savor unto God, and that is typical, uh, typified by the burnt offering on that brazen altar. The whole burnt offering, it was all consumed to God. There's m other aspects of the offerings, but let me just give you those three and, and try to, uh, to show you what I'm talking about. First of all, it was necessary that Jesus die for our sins. That's for us, right? And in order... For us to have peace with God, he had to make that peace with God through his death on the cross. That's another aspect of the death of Christ. And then, furthermore, he did so. There was something about his devotedness unto God in giving himself. Look at Ephesians 5 verse 2, and I think you'll see that coming out. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. It says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. Now, that's a sin offering, right? An offering. He gave Himself for us, a sin offering. And hath given Himself for us, an offering, and a sacrifice to God. There's a different aspect. A sacrifice to God. There was something about Christ's death that was just to God. Never mind to us. This aspect had to do with His devotedness unto death, unto God. And it says... For a sweet-smelling savor. In other words, when Jesus says, Father, I'll give myself to the death of the cross wholly and completely, a sacrifice for sin, God says, I accept this as a sweet-smelling savor. Now then, all, you, all these various aspects of Christ's death come through 
when we get to teaching these offerings in the book of Leviticus, and we'll bring them out individually. In fact, there's more than those. But in doing that, he not only offered himself for our sins, but he offered himself unto God. And then being between us and God, he offered himself as a peace offering, and he made peace with God because he took our judgment, you see, upon himself. And therefore, being justified by faith in Christ's death and and resurrection, we have peace with God, see, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know He's made that peace for us. Uh, Colossians 1.20, And having made peace through the blood of His cross. So, uh, those various aspects. You know, a lot of people say, well, I understand the death of Christ on the cross because He died for my sins. Friend, that's not all. That's wonderful and that's great that He died for our sins. But it's also great that He made peace with God. And it's also great that in doing so, He gave Himself to God, wholly devoted to God in doing this. It says, God shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. See? Uh, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put Him to grief. When thou shalt offer up His soul an offering for sin, He shall see His seed. He shall prolong His days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. And so all of these, Isaiah 53 that I've been quoting, comes out. Now then, we're going on to the inside. Look at that brazen labor. We studied it last in our last lesson. And upon our way into the holiness and presence of God, we have the washing of water by the Word, where the priests had to wash themselves at this uh, laver of brass that you see, that little round uh, uh, bowl in the center. And it's not so little as the picture might uh, appear to be, but it's a huge basin made out of brass. And remember we told you in our last lesson that it was made out of the mirrors of the women so you to look into it and it's uh, as if we're looking into the perfect law of liberty, the Word of God, James says, and we see what we need to do, and then therefore we wash ourselves in the water or labor of God's Word, the washing of water by the Word, the Bible says, uh, in Ephesians 5 and also in uh, Psalms, it says, Wherewith shall the young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy Word? That's the way you cleanse yourself. And in John 15, verse 3, the Bible says what? You're clean through the Word which I've spoken to you. We gave you Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Now then, you come to the front of that tabernacle. You see the tabernacle itself inside of this court. And you see, we've already dealt with those various coverings over the tabernacle. Remember? On the outside, the badger skin. Nothing much to be desired of Christ, right? That's what covered the outside. And what was the next thing? The next thing was goat's hair, right? And that's the sin offering. And then ram's skin dyed red. And then, uh, well, I'm taking from the outside to the inside. And then on the inside, the white linen. So you have the white linen. And then you have the, the goat's hair. I, should, I got those two wrong. You have the white linen, and then the goat's hair, and then the ram skins dyed red, and then the badger skin. That's the four layers. And all of these significant about Christ. On the inside of the tabernacle, Christ's righteousness. The next thing, uh, the goat's hair covering. He had to die for our sins before we could get inside, right? And bear our sins. And then, in dying for our sins... The ram skins dyed red. He was devoted even unto death, the death of the cross. That comes out in these offerings as well. See, it all blends together. It's all harmonious. 
You know, all the tabernacle is doctrinally uh, stable. It's sound. You have the silver that speaks of redemption, the gold that speaks of deity. You have the, the brass that speaks of judgment. You have the blue and the purple and the scarlet that speaks of the glory and the heavenly. The purple royalty, the blue the heavenly. Christ is the heavenly man. He's the royal man. He's the righteous man. The white linen, the righteousness of Christ. You have the onyx stones. We studied that last week on the shoulders of the of the priests, and now the names of the children of Israel upon his shoulders and upon his breast as well. And we found all of those details. And now we're coming to this tabernacle. Look at that tabernacle. And in front, there is the way that you get in there. You there's a, a veil over the front, the door. We said at the gate, Jesus says, I'm the way, right? Now, when you come to the tabernacle, he says, I'm the door. I'm the door. By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved. So he is the door of salvation for every uh, repentant sinner and believing sinner. And then you come on the inside of the tabernacle, and what do you have? The golden candlestick. And what is that? Christ is the light of the world. And Jesus says, uh, he is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus says, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the, the light of life. Now I want to give you something else. Inside that tabernacle and inside of Christ, there was... Uh, the, let's think of the tabernacle. And I'm trying to say too much at one time. I realize that, but I hope you're following me. But inside that tabernacle, there was no natural light. It was divine light. And inside of Christ, we don't walk by the the light of nature as Christians. We walk by the light of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation, said the psalmist. And Jesus says, He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, that's spiritual darkness, but shall have the light of life. He's not talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. He's not talking about the, this create, even of His creation. He's not talking about the light of day. He's, and He's not talking about light that we manufacture. But He's talking about He Himself as the light of the world. And then on the other side, you have the table of showbread. See, it's over on this side, on the right-hand side as you enter in. And that table of showbread had 12 loaves on it. And that represented the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And it was representative that He was bread for all of His people. Just as Jesus said in the New Testament, you study John the 6th chapter specifically, over and over again, He said, I am that bread of life. I am that bread that came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. Whosoever eateth of this bread shall live forever. And then someone says, well, how are we going to eat of that bread? He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So you, you eat of him by faith or believing on him, you're partaking of that bread of life. See, you know, a lot of people say, well, I wish I could eat of that bread of life. He says the way to do it is faith, is belief. You know, I don't know why we try to complicate God's Word when it's so plain. Uh, we need to uncomplicate it to people. In the Old Testament, the prophet says, uh, write God's Word, and he says, write the message and make it so, so plain that the one that runs can read it. The one that can read it on the run. So that he'll know what it says. With plainness. Uh, when Ezra the scribe stood behind the pulpit of wood, he, he stood behind there, he read the Word of God, and Nehemiah as well, and it says he gave the sense. In other words, he explained it. 
He explained the law of God. And that's what preachers are for, is to explain and make it clear and make it understandable as to what God said. Not to make it so deep and so complicated. And I realize that the Word of God has two depths, that, it's, that it has the, the, uh, the, the milk for the, the young convert, and then the more uh, uh, hearty meat of the Word for the more mature For instance, let me give you a a verse of Scripture. Almost every Sunday school child knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now let me give you two ways of looking at it. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The little boy, five or six years old, in Sunday school or little girl can understand, well, God loved me. He gave His Son for me. And he died on the cross. Uh, he gave himself so I could have, what? Everlasting life. I mean, you know, it's just kind of simplified. But then, there's enough in that verse to drown a theological world. You know why? It says, for God so loved. Look at it now. So loved. How, what is the measure of the love of God? Can any theologian measure that love? So loved the world, so great a mass of mankind from the time of Adam till the last man lives and dies and all at one time upon the earth. See? Think of how many billion people there are upon the earth today. And think of how many there have been since Adam's time until we don't know when Jesus will come. We hope He comes. Brother Walker and I were talking on the phone the other day and said, we hope He comes right away, don't we? Amen. So, because we was talking about someone passing on and going to be with the Lord. But the thing about it is, uh, we want to be ready. But we don't know when that will be. But think of the intensity of God's love. For God so loved the world that He gave. Look, He gave the greatest gift that could be given. He gave more than any person. You talk about men, men with billions of dollars and what they give. And of course, most of them that have them don't give them. But anyway, what we're talking about is that that, uh, that if you give all the money in the world, you couldn't give what God gave. He gave His only begotten Son. Have you ever thought about giving one of your children one of your own flesh and blood? It would be bad enough for one of your own to sacrifice himself for a good man. Jesus said, uh, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 5, for, for adventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for good men. He died for sinners. See, and so can you contrast the measure of that love? Say, my son died over here trying to save another good boy out in the lake. And he gave his life in order to save that other boy. You know, if you use that for an example. You say, well, that's a great sacrifice that he made. But he, he died trying to save a good fellow, didn't he? And one person. But Jesus died not only to save no good fellows at all, no good people at all, all sinned and come short of the glory of God, all ungodly, all uh, uh, yet sinners, and to save not just one, but a whole lost world. And there's no way that our human minds can contrast that. Well, I better go on. But anyway, you go on with John 3.16. And you can see the contrast all the way. Uh, 
He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, look, the invitation's over, open to all, believeth in Him, the simplicity of the plan of salvation, faith in Christ, and then should not perish from, from destruction and judgment to having, to have the greatest contrast and the greatest difference, to have everlasting life just as a free gift. You see, there's no way that the theologian can, can swim in the depths of that ocean of, of theological truth. And yet we find that God's Word had both, has both sides of it, doesn't it? Because the little kid reads it on his Sunday school card and learns how to be saved just by knowing that God loves him, right? So, we're talking about the, the magnitude of the Word of God now as we progress along. So, we're coming along there and see that bread... That table of showbread. Christ is the bread of life for all. He's the one that came down from heaven. He's the bread of life for all of His children. And then we come to that altar of incense. We studied it in our last lesson. And we remember that because it was uh, sanctified by the blood from this brazen altar out here, and the sin offering of this brazen altar, and the, uh, the atonement was made from the brazen altar, that that altar of incense, look at it right on your picture just before you go into that veil, that that altar of incense was only made uh, a possible because it was sanctified by the blood of that uh, offering out here on the, on the uh, brazen altar. Which means simply that that altar of incense that's symbolical of prayer and makes our prayer and our worship acceptable to God it's only sanctified or made so by what? That sacrifice and that blood that was shed on the brazen altar. In other words, let's put it in New Testament words. The only way our worship is and our prayers and our devotion is acceptable to God is because of Jesus' death on the cross and of Him shedding His blood. And see, that's what a lot of people don't understand. They think they can come to God just because God is God. Well... God is God, but God made a plan, has a plan and a purpose and a method and a means and merits for us to approach His throne. And only way we can do that is through Jesus Christ. He is the one and only way in all of these aspects. And everything about this tabernacle speaks of His work and His uh, uh, work uh, of Him and His work for us. And so we find. Then you come to that veil in the midst of the, temp uh, the tabernacle there. You see that veil in the midst of the tabernacle? About halfway back, right behind that altar of incense. Now then, it's called on your plan there the golden altar, which is the golden altar of incense. And right behind there is that veil. Now behind that veil, now I'm trying to progress you right onto the inside. Remember, we were on the outside, right? And the... The righteousness of God is what separates us from any approach to God. And we have, uh, on the outside of this court, let me back up just a step. On the outside of this court, remember that we needed divine righteousness in order to get on the inside. And we had to come by the way. But we needed divine righteousness. <clears throat> and God's Word says that God hath made Him, Second Corinthians 5.21, listen carefully. He hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made, what? The righteousness of God in Him. So through Christ, we're able to get on the inside. 
And all of these things are symbolical, but let's get back now to this uh, veil in the midst of the tabernacle. Only inside of that veil went the high priest, and only once a year, and not without blood, which he uh, offered first, he offered a sacrifice for himself, a sin offering for himself, and then for the people. He had to sanctify himself first because he was a sinner. See, Jesus didn't have to do that. He was no sinner. He had to just do it for us. So, uh, but the high priest in the Old Testament had to first atone for his own sins, and then he came back in again and atoned for the sins of the people, and he brought the blood of that brazen altar, that sacrifice on the brazen altar, into that holy of holies, that most holy place. You see where the Ark of the Covenant is? And we've studied that. That's the first thing we studied an oblong box where he sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat. That is on the lid of this ark. Inside that, see where it says the ark of the covenant? Inside of the holy of holies. And he says, there's where I will meet with, with the high priest. And he met with him representatively of all the children of Israel. And there, when God met with that high priest on that one day a year, and you'll study that in the book of Leviticus when we get there, on the day of atonement, there he made atonement for all... In fact, let me state it like the Bible states it. He laid his hand upon the head of the goat of the sin offering, and there he confessed over the head of that goat all the sins and all the iniquities and all the transgressions of all the children of Israel. By implication... He transferred all their sins and, uh, of every one of them to the head of that goat and He made atonement for the sins of all of Israel for a year at a time when He went into that holy place. And there were two goats that cons constituted that one offering. And one goat was killed and offered for a sin offering. And the other goat, as I said, the high priest would confess over the head of that live goat. He laid his hands upon his head, which meant he was transferring or imputing or reckoning, reckoning to the head of that goat all the sins and all the transgressions. There was bloodshed with the one goat. They both goats constitute the one offering. And he confessed all the sins, all iniquities on the head of that live goat. And this live goat was taken away and led away by the hand, it says, of a fit man, a qualified man, into the wilderness and let go. And so when this man returned, the children of Israel could say, our sins are gone, they're taken away, we can't find them. But they could only do that for a year at a time. But you know what it says about us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12? Now listen, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into that holy place, that ark of the covenant, only in heaven. He entered in once into that holy place with His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And by that one sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 10, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, those that are set apart. Not through our being set apart by our own holiness. There is a sanctification that is ours, that we progressively do. But by this being set apart is by His blood. Look in Hebrews 10 quickly. Let me read it for you. Hebrews 10. 
It says this. <clears throat> Let me see. Verse 10 through 14. By the which will we're sanctified, that means we're set apart to God. You have Hebrews 10, verse 10. Through the offering, how are we set apart? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, <coughs> once for all, that means for all sins. And verse 11. And every priest in the Old Testament standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, that is, on a permanent basis. But this man, Christ, this man, after he had offered, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, and that means all sins, forever, sat down, the work was finished, on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting until his enemies be made his footstool. Now, here's the key verse. Look. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. By Christ's offering, he's perfected forever them that are sanctified. You think the Bible doesn't teach security? Friend, you better start studying it again. The Bible teaches the security of the believer. We're not talking about the security of the fellow that half believes and lives in sin and is not born again. We're talking about security of the believer. And I believe that's where a lot of people get confused. Because they say, well, brother so-and-so did so-and-so back there, and they confess Christ, and look where they are today. Well, that doesn't mean anything. It means that there's a mistake either on his part, or he's backslidden away from God, and God will have to convict him, bring him back. Maybe he was never converted. Don't compare man's experiences by God's Word. Take God's Word and, and see where man fits. Right? Take God's Word and see where man fits. And it says here, by one offering, God, He hath perfected forever them that are set apart. How are they set apart? Them that are sanctified? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, for all sins. Now then, in that Holy of Holies, again, I have to leave this point. I could dwell on it the rest of the evening. But I want you to look at that Ark of the Covenant again. Look at it. Inside, and it's inside that veil. Now, what else happened when Jesus died on the cross? Remember that the temple was made after the same order or fashion, uh, not exact dimensions, but after the same order as the tabernacle. In other words, it was derived from the tabernacle order of, uh, of things. There were dimensions that were different because it was updated to a temple instead of a tabernacle in the wilderness. But you had basically the same things involved. And you had a court of the Gentiles and various other things that were involved. But what I'm talking about is that when Jesus died on the cross, see that veil in the tabernacle, and we'll say the veil of the temple to give you the right words of the New Testament. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil in the temple rent in the midst from the top to the bottom. Now then, of course it was enlarged and it was 60 feet high. Now, in a temple, but still the typification or the symbolical and picturesque meaning is still here. It was rent in, in twain from the top to the bottom in Christ's death, and then that opened up the way into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and we'll get to what was in there. You know what was in there, in the Ark of the Covenant, this oblong chest with, the, the, with Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, and a golden pot that had manna. Okay. But anyway, 
that showed that when that through Christ's death and by the merits of Christ's death, that he was opening up the way, now listen, into the very presence of God, not just for a high priest, not just for an ordinary priest, but for every believer priest to come into God's presence uninhibited, constantly, openly, day or night, at any time, at any place, through the merits of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. And that's the wonderful truth that's coming out. Look in Hebrews 10 again. Now then, drop down to verse uh, 19. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. That's what it's talking about. The holiest. See where the Ark of the Covenant is? That's the holiest. And having boldness to enter into the holiest. We're not talking about a tabernacle made with hands. We're talking about that which is symbolized by this Old Testament tabernacle that was made with hands in Moses' day. And in Hebrews 10, it's talking about the real tabernacle in heaven. Okay? We're to enter into God's presence, into His holy place, in spirit, in a spiritual way. Okay? Having therefore, brethren, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, has made it possible that you and I enter into the very presence of God. Listen carefully now. Through what Jesus did on the cross, because the veil of the temple was rent in the midst, right? Now look, it says, by a new and living way, see, that means it's new, it means we have liberty to enter in, it means it's ever fresh, the word new means ever fresh, and living way means it's, it's uh, possible at any time, day or night, and constantly through this day and age of grace, even down till now, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with, uh, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, we're cleansed in the presence of God. We're qualified uh, on the merits of Christ to enter into the very presence of God. And it says, enter in at liberty. Or the word boldness there in verse 19 means or with liberty, free, uninhibited, going on at any time. Through what? Through Christ's blood that was shed on the cross. Now let me give you something else. Someone says, well, how do you know that's what it's talking about? Drop back to the ninth chapter of Hebrews if you have it quickly. Hebrews 9, drop back now, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Now look, in verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Okay, it's talking about that Christ, that the better, that that the patterns of the Old Testament were purified with, by blood. All the things of the tabernacle were purified with blood, sanctified with blood. Okay? But it says the, the patterns of the things in heavens with better sacrifices. What does it mean? The blood of Christ than these of the Old Testament. Now, verse 24 says, For Christ, see, is not entered into holy places made with hands. This one we, we've been studying was made with hands. The hands of men, the hands of Moses, right? 
And even the temple. And He's not entered into holy places made with hands, which are what? Look at it. Figures of the true. Well, what is the true? Figures of the true. Follow it on down. See how it unfolds? But into heaven itself. Christ is entered into heaven itself. He's entered into this, look, holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, into heaven itself, because the Old Testament were figures of the true. And the true is in Christ, and the true is in heaven itself. Now to appear, look, in the presence of God for us. So He's there as our great high priest, and He's not only there as our great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, Hebrews chapter 4, but He tells us, that He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, He has bidden us to come there boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in prayer, we come into God's divine presence. You know, without studying this Old Testament, I, I don't believe that you can really visualize how close a place you have to God and how how much has been accomplished in the death of Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, only the priests could go into the first part of this. This was the ordinary priests in the first part of this tabernacle. And only the high priest could go into the second part of it, the Holy of Holies. But Jesus says, through Him, we can not only go into go through the gate and go by the brazen altar, the way of the cross. We can go be cleansed by the Word. We can go inside the, the tabernacle. We see Him as the bread of life and we see Him as the light of the world. We can lift up, we can offer our worship at the golden altar of incense. We can go inside where only the high priest was permitted to go once a year and not without blood. And we can go in there where only one man could go. And Jesus has bidden us to come with Him, because of Him, into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, on His merits, at liberty, with great boldness, and not worry about a thing. Isn't that something? And so when we assemble here and worship in the church, I want you to just think about it for a moment. When we assemble here in the church, and we ask one of the brethren to lead in prayer. And all of our hearts are lifted up with that brother as he words the prayer. And maybe we say if, uh, the Holy Spirit leads us to even uh, think or, or say something for someone else that maybe his, his words have not articulated. And uh, maybe uh, it's beyond our ability to put those into real words. Because the Bible says the Spirit... Himself maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so our thoughts think of someone that's in need or someone that's suffering or someone that has pain or someone that's uh, had a, uh, a bereavement in the family. Uh, and our mind goes to that one. But as the brother is praying, what's happening? We're all entering. We're all entering, not just here in the tabernacle made with hands, but in a spiritual way. We're entering into the very presence of God we're entering in through the virtue, by virtue of the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross and the shed blood that He shed on the cross. And our prayers are going up to God and we're entering beyond the altar of incense. That's a part of our prayers. But we're entering into the very presence of God where everything is available of God's glory and grace and goodness. And I believe that 
a deep study of this tabernacle will encourage everyone will encourage everyone to realize how much we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that tonight it will uh, do that for you. You keep this little uh, piece of paper. And every time you have a chance, begin to think upon some of these things that I've uh, given you. And not only all the materials that are there, the gold and the silver and the, and the brass, gold speaks of the deity of Christ, the silver speaks of redemption. Remember, it was made of redemption money, the foundation. Uh, the brass speaks of judgment. There was a brazen altar and a brazen labor. And our sins have to be judged on the cross of Calvary. Our sins have to be judged in ourselves when we come to the brazen labor and confess our sins, right? And then all of these things are, are symbolical and serve as pictures and symbols of, of Christ and what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, it won't be uh, well to start and give you these three things in these three chapters of the princes. And I'll save that for uh, the next lesson. Uh, Randy will be speaking for Sunday night. But uh, our next Wednesday night lesson, I'll try to give you that parenthesis. But I wanted you to have the simple way, and I don't know how simple it was, but I tried to lead you as simple as I could, right in from the gate, from the outside, to the inside of God's presence, as is pictured by the tabernacle. And uh, there's so much more to be said.